People buy your product, people listen to your podcast, people read your newsletter because they have a job they want you to do for them. If you had told me a few years ago, I'm gonna have 500,000 or more subscribers based on writing about product management, I would have punted you like a football and called you crazy. I would have felt the same. People spend so much time trying to think about where do I host my newsletter? What do I call it? Let me design it beautifully. Anytime you spend on that is just waste of time. You could be spending on writing awesome stuff. If Rite of Passage existed to create an archetype of person, I think it's just like you. Be high quality and do it again and again and again and good things are gonna happen. I guess like the best example I think of is Milky Way versus Snickers. I was not expecting you to go there. <laughs> Lenny, your success is amazing to me because I wouldn't have thought that in this niche of people writing about product management, products, engineering in Silicon Valley, growth, that there would be any more room. But you say that there's always room for better content. Yeah, I guess on the first piece, it's wild to me that a newsletter about product management and growth is like one of the top five biggest newsletters on Substack and somehow this like really random topic has done super well. So that just continues to blow my mind. And it's not where I expected the newsletter to go. I feel like people don't realize like 99% of the stuff on the internet is just like not actually good. And they forget that there's an opportunity. Okay, if I can do something really great, people are going to pay attention. But easier said than done. How do you rise above the noise? So there's a few things that I find to be really important. One is just spending more time on stuff. I feel like people don't actually have a lot of time, most people. So they just kind of put stuff out. And if you can find the time, to put into a post to make it awesome, you have a chance. So for me, I spend about 10 hours per post, something like that. Some posts take like 100 hours, some more. So so that's one advantage. If you could just like find more time, I spend a lot of time on each post. I, I basically do this full time. And kind of on that note, I feel like once you can do this full time or even part time, you have there's kind of this flywheel that kicks in where you have more time, so it gets better. And then you grow faster. And then so you get up more time, so you start to make money doing it. And just kind of get this advantage over other people that are doing it part-time. Uh, back to your question of how to make it awesome and how to make better content. The other thing I find is really important is just be really clear about the like what you're doing for someone. Like, What are you trying to do for them with your content? I think about this jobs to be done framework. I don't know how many people know about this, but the whole idea is like when people buy your stuff or read your article, there's a, there's a job they're trying to, they want you to do for them. Teach me how to see the world more interestingly. Tell me, teach me how to make money. Teach me how to uh, help my career. And I feel like if you can do that better than anything else out there, people will read it and it'll be useful to them. And they'll, you know, people share with their friends. Yeah. So the job I'm trying to do for people is help them get better at building product, help them grow their product, help them accelerate their career. And so if I could do that better than anything else out there, people will gravitate towards it. Most of my readers are founders, product managers, product teams, people that are building software products. And their whole job basically is to build product that is successful. So part of that is just building an awesome product that people want. Part of that is growing the product. And so that's what I try to help them with. So some of my most popular posts are how to get your first thousand users, how to, what is good retention? How do you kickstart and scale a B2B business? Something I just worked on recently. So it's these very like tactical questions that I try to answer for people. Um, just broadly, the way I think about this stuff is I think of this like puzzle board of all the questions and problems founders and product teams have. And my job is to fill in each of those puzzle pieces. Do you actually have that? No, nope. it's just kind of this vision I have of like, I'm not going to be done. People always wonder, like, am I going to run out of cop topics and questions? Am I going to just like 
when does it end? And I feel like until I can fill that whole puzzle board of uh, answering every question a founder has or a product team has, then I, I have stuff to write about. You have a wonderful humility about you. you. You don't stand up and say, oh, I'm a writer. I get to write about whatever. You're like, no, I'm building a product. These are the jobs that need to be done from my readers, and I'm just going to serve them on that. And there's a very practical orientation that you have about your writing. Yeah, 100 percent. Uh, there are many smarter people than I at this, at, specifically at the thing I read about. And I never feel like I know it all. Part of this writing thing is me figuring out these things. I, you talk about this a lot, like part of writing is learning and crystallizing your own ideas. So a lot of this comes from that. So I just, I have a pretty low ego. I'd say I just don't feel like I know a lot of things, especially compared to any other people. So I try to stay humble there. And then, um, and then too, I feel like there's just a lot of thirstiness on the internet where people are just trying to build a following. I'm going to build a following and, you know, grow their subscribers and all these things. And I, I try really hard not to come at it from like, I need to build a following. I just come at it from how do I just deliver value to people? And I find good things happen. So I don't spend any time on growth and like big strategy. I just kind of see what's working, follow that pull, double down on things that are working as much as I can. Service instead of self-gain. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and not from like some altruistic, like, oh, I'm just, I'm just going to make all this. Like, I don't, obviously I think about the income and like what this ends up being, but I feel like if I can just solve problems for people, they will share it with their friends. They'll share it with their colleagues. It'll grow. And that's exactly how it's worked. I just put out stuff people find useful. They share it. They come back to it. They read it again and again. And so there's a Einstein quote, a podcast guest recently shared that I love that something like seek not to find success, but to be of value. And that's exactly what I've been trying to do. That's the great paradox is that by serving others, you end up serving yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It just works. Like, you know, the word of mouth, like what, what drives word of mouth? People find something useful. They tell their friends about it. Hey, this is really cool. And that's exactly how it's worked. Like the whole newsletters were on through word of mouth. Like I've tried Twitter ads. I've tried Facebook ads, LinkedIn ads, uh, cross promotion, all the things, nothing, nothing has done anything. Like it's all a blip compared to just the, the growth that comes from word of mouth. Plus this uh, recommendation feature that Substack has that we can talk about. That's pretty magical. Tell me about one of these 100-hour posts. How do you conceptualize that? How do you do the research when you know it's good? So one of the first things that I wrote was this uh, seven-part series on how to kickstart and scale a marketplace business. That came out of, I left Airbnb. People started coming to me and they're just like, Lenny, what did Airbnb do to grow supply? How did they figure out quality of homes? How did they fix the booking conversion experience. Like, and I'm just like, well, here's what they did, but I don't know if that's the right answer. Like, maybe it was luck that they worked out. Uh, who knows if that was the right way to do it? So it was just feeling like I'm giving people this advice that wasn't fully true necessarily. So I decided, let me just go interview all the marketplace founders of all the biggest marketplaces and just synthesize the patterns across all of them. And they were willing to do that. That's a shocking thing I find again and again. People just are so open especially in tech, and I'm sure you find this, people are so open with sharing what they've learned, what happened in the early days. Like the series I just did on B2B businesses, the same thing, they talk about it. how they grow, how they got their first users, how they think about prioritizing roadmap, like all the things that you would think they'd be really secretive about. They're very open about that sort of thing, partly because they think they've seen that grows. They're, you know, people find out about them, it's good marketing. And 
there's a lot more to building a massive business than like, here's the one tactic or here's the one idea. So yeah, they're all very open. So I basically interviewed them. How'd you start? How'd you start Etsy? How'd you start AngelList's initial marketplace, things like that? How did you get the first 10 users? How'd you get the first thousand? How did you figure out supply versus demand? So, and are you pushing on specifics or what yeah, makes a good interview? I basically come at it from, here's all the questions people that are building a marketplace are going to have. And I just ask them all those questions. So I ended up interviewing 17 founders of marketplace companies, either founders or early employees. Ends up being like tons of writing and content that I have to synthesize. So I interview them, look for patterns, try to find kind of a framework or a process. So in that case, there's kind of a four-step process that it turned out for building a marketplace. It's essentially constrain the marketplace to a very focused problem and a geography, focus on supply first and focus on demand. So tell me about these interviews. So when you're reaching out to people, you're reaching out to the biggest names, you're reaching out to the smartest people. Is What are you looking for and what makes a good interview subject? I start with what's the wish list of companies that everyone would be so excited to hear from. Like, what are the dream companies? Like, if I were building a marketplace, I'd want to learn from Uber, Airbnb, maybe Etsy, uh, Rover, I don't know. So I start with like my wish list, and then I look for, one, do I know anyone there? Two, do I know someone that knows someone there? I look at LinkedIn, do I have any overlapping connections? So I kind of start from the top. What are the best? What are the best companies and the best people? And then I try to get them all. And I... I have this habit of just like, I just want more. So I start on these things. I'm like, okay, who else can I get? How do I do one more? How do I do one more? And it becomes this like potentially never ending thing. And, but ends up, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to ship this freaking thing. So you, I presume have a bunch of notes on a sheet of paper and those are messy. How does that work? Fairly messy. So how do you go from that to a post? I basically, so I interview them. I ask them all the same questions. So let's say... How did you decide if your marketplace is supply constrained or demand constrained? That's a, in a marketplace like Airbnb, you have to decide, do we focus on growing travelers or do we focus on growing homes? Which one do we need more of? So I asked them all that question. Then I copy and paste the answers of all those answers into a doc. And then I just look through it and just look for patterns. And usually a few things emerge. Like here's three ways that companies have thought about prioritizing supply. So basically, it's just like staring a lot of content, looking for patterns, starting to like create a little bullet points of like, oh, here's some takeaways. And then I look for, is there a way to visualize it? Is there a really cool quote that highlights this idea? So the algorithm here is find something that people are curious about. Like a question that they want answered. Question that they want answered. Yeah. Go make information that's trapped in people's knowledge, get it out of them, yep. synthesize it, put it onto a page in a way that answers that original yeah, problem. Yeah, exactly. And then at the beginning of one of the steps is who are the best people in the world? Like who would be the ideal people to get this information from? Because if I'm anybody like random founders and startups people don't care about, they're going to be like, eh, I don't know. Like why would I trust this? So, so step two there I would add is uh, think about the best possible people. And I had the advantage where I worked at Airbnb for a while. So I had a bit of a, oh, he worked at Airbnb. Maybe we should talk to him. There's also a flywheel that kicks in where the more of this I do, the more network I've built by doing previous interviews. So it becomes easier to get to people. But like, I didn't know anyone when I left. But you weren't interviewing Zuckerberg or yeah. Sheryl Sandberg for people at the top. You were interviewing someone who's the senior vice president here, the president there. And those people probably have one fiftieth of the inbound. Yeah, that's a really good point. Let's so I didn't maybe go for like, you know, Elon Musk from the beginning. But, uh, but it, yeah, that's right. 
Uh, and if I can't get to the founder, I go to like an early employee or an early, or just someone that was there that just knows a lot of stuff. So yeah. So it's more like, think about, in my case, the company you want to learn from and then like, who's the best person to get to. But yeah, yeah, don't start. Don't go too crazy. <laughs> well, it seems like there's a big correlation between how much effort you put in and how well the post does. But you have posts like your template posts, which crushed with only a few hours of work. Talk That's about right. that. That's right. Uh, generally, there's a very strong correlation between the amount of time I put into a post and how well it does. Sometimes that is not the case. So I have this post of just my favorite templates, like my favorite strategy template and vision template and PRD and one pager and roadmap template. And yeah, it took me like, it was like, so I, to, I publish every week and I have to like put out something awesome every week. And sometimes I'm like, shit, I don't have any time this week. So I'm like, what can I do? That's pretty easy. So I always had this idea. I'll just collect all my favorite templates and make it a post. So one week I did that. And yeah, it's one of the top 10 most popular posts. But if you think about it, I spent time in the past collecting those things. Like we're putting together those templates. And I don't know if it's fair to say it was only three hours because there's time previously, but it was very quick. There's a few others. There's this one on what is a mission, I guess, stepping back. When you're building a product, there's kind of this sequence of things you want to do. There's like, what is the mission of the company? What's the vision? What are the goals? What is the roadmap? What are the tasks? So I laid it out for people just like, how do you think about the sequencing of that vision and mission and strategy and goals? And I described it in the frame of Ocean's Eleven as they're, <laughs> as they're trying to rob the, uh, the MGM and the other casinos. Like, what is their mission? What is their vision? What is their strategy? What is their goals? Do you like using pop culture references? I, I love it, but I'm really bad at it. Like, I'm not one of those guys that just can has these metaphors and examples in mind. Do you know what I do? What do you do? Can I have the solution for you. Just ask GPT. So what you do is you go in and you say, hey, this is the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah. I need a pop culture reference. So oh, here's what shit. I did. I had a friend who was struggling with focus. And he loves, loves films. So I called him. I said, dude, you're working on like eight different things. If you could just focus on one thing, I'm telling you, you'd be so much better off. And he loves movies. So I was like, I have to frame this from the perspective of a movie. But I don't watch that many movies. I'm not like a big movie guy. Same with TV shows. So I go to GPT. I'm like, this is a story that I'm trying to tell. Give me a pop culture reference. And it starts off with like the story of Honda. So I'm like, actually, I need it to be a fictional narrative. And then it gives me this example, this example. And I just narrow it down, narrow it down. I end up with Rocky Four. <laughs> so I have Rocky Four. I'm like, yes, that's the perfect story. And I go to him with the Rocky Four framing. And his whole life has changed since then. And all I did was go to GPT. I had the answer. I worked with it. And that's what I needed. This is going to be the highlight of the podcast. This is amazing. <laughs> so you just post the post in there, like the, the concept. Well, I went to go have a conversation with him. Yeah. So I just reviewed the story arc and he's like, I love that movie, Rocky yeah. Four. Amazing. And something about that movie with the fighting I knew was really going to resonate with him. It took me like seven or eight back and forths, but then I found what I needed. Every, every one of my posts now is going to have a story and a metaphor. <laughs> amazing. Okay. Thank you. You heard it here first. You heard it here first. How much do you think about storytelling versus practical, just get right to it, wisdom? So I find <clears throat> I have no training in writing. I've never written anything online before I started this thing. Uh, and so I find that the less I can think about the beauty of my writing and the style of the writing and like a, being a writer, the better everything goes. 
So I try really hard just like, let's just focus on high signal to noise, uh, actionable, succinct, useful information. And then at the end, I'm like, oh, how do I make this introduction a little more interesting? How do I simplify this? How do I introduce this in like a metaphor? High signal to noise. High signal to noise. Actionable. Actionable. And succinct. Talk about all three of those. Yeah. I think the reason my stuff does great is it's just like, here's an answer to your question. I've spent tens of hours thinking about this, researching, and giving you an answer. And so how do you do that best? It's just like, just give me the information. Uh, As an example, I find that introductions are often way too long. People just spend all this time introducing the thing they're writing about. And you're reading it, it's like, shut up, but just tell me the answer already. And they leave the answer to the end. And I just, and I've learned this from a couple of books that I've read about on writing. of just like, just tell them right away. Here's the answer. And then if you want to learn more, here's how, here's how I got to this. And here's a bunch more detail. So that's something that I, along the lines of high signal to noise, just like, here's a chart of the entire answer to this question. For example, a recent post was around how to find product market fit. It was part of this broader series of how to start a B2B business. And that's a question everyone has. How do I know if I have product market fit? How do I know? How do I get there? So I'm just like, oh yeah, here's a big chart of how long it took everyone to get there. And then here's four steps to get there. And then, cool, if you want to keep reading, here's all the quotes and stories from all these founders. Tell me about your first post that went viral. It's called, What Seven Years at Airbnb Taught Me About Building a Business. So this post was about basically what I learned from my time at Airbnb. And one of the elements is just have a really high bar for everything. And, and I talk about all the examples of that. And one of the examples is we're uh, approaching a launch of this neighborhoods product where there's this idea of like, when you're trying to book an Airbnb, you want to understand the neighborhoods in a city, right? Like is the tenderloin, what is the tenderloin all about? And so they were about to launch that as a huge thing. And a few days before launch, the designer was working on the homepage and she's just like trying to figure out a way to, you know, explain what this is. And he's walking around and he looks at her example and what she's working on and he's like, and she asks him, like, what do you think? And he's like, no, let's build something the internet has never seen before for this, for this homepage. <laughs> and it's like a few days before launch. And she ends up building this like parallaxy look thing where you're scrolling and it kind of like shifts in interesting ways. So she figured something out. But that's kind of like the bar at Airbnb is just like, let's just, how do we 10x this thing? How do we, how do we build something the internet's never seen before? Uh, which is very stressful. Uh, hard to work in that environment for a long time. But, uh, but it's part of the reason Airbnb has been successful, I think. How did that influence your quality bar? Another reason I think the newsletter has done well is I keep a really high quality bar. I try really hard to get to a place where I don't see anything else I can correct or improve. So I read through my posts 10, 20, 30 times just again and again, looking for what can I tweak? What can I simplify? What can I cut? What can I move around? Until it's just like, okay, this is great. I don't know what else I could do. Unless I just like redo it all or spend another hundred hours. So I think a lot about just like, how do I keep the quality bar really high? Coming back to the earlier thing we talked about, there's just like a lot of bad content on the internet and the way you succeed is high quality. And so it comes back again to just, you need to spend a lot of time on it and people can tell if it's high quality. And I don't know, quality is also like grammar issues, short intros, just like, really clear ideas. Um, but I think, I think keeping yourself to a really high standard is really important. There's a line from Steph Smith where she says, how do you be great? Be good consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I always tell people and ask me how to be successful in writing, I think in content in general is just quality and consistency. Just 
be high quality and do it again and again and again and good things are going to happen. And easier said than done on the quality piece and the consistency piece. But it's exactly that quote. And I think good is, I'd say, like, I think good is, is probably good enough. Like, you don't need to be the best in the world at it, but I think you should strive to be the best in the world. And if you can get to, like, one of the best in the world on a topic that you're really focused on, you'll have a really good shot at being successful. But I think it's as simple as that. Just produce really high quality stuff again and again. Like, for me, I've been doing it for four years now. The first nine months, it was, like, very slow growing newsletters these days go shoot up so fast. And it t- I don't know, it took me probably a year to get to something like 10,000 subscribers. People get there in a couple months at this point. So, uh, but that's the thing I always come back to, quality and consistency. How do you balance the desire to be good with the need to publish every week? I think that is a really useful uh, forcing function. You ever pull I, all-nighters? I, absolutely not. Never, no, absolutely not. No. Interesting. Never. I think it's because I stress out about not being done. So I publish on Tuesday. So I'm always like, I want to be done way before Monday even. I try to be done like over the weekend. So I never get to a point of like, oh shit, it's Tuesday and I'm not done. I've never gone there. Honestly, if I ever get to that point, I would just take the week off and just like, sorry guys, I'm taking a PTO. I, I invented a PTO policy for myself because as a solo writer person, like I don't have any benefits of any kind. I have no PTO, no uh, 401k matching, no sick time. So I created like, I'm just going to take four weeks off sometimes. That's just when you're signing up, just know that. So I would do that if I was running behind. So why do you think this Airbnb posted so well? So the way it came about, I left Airbnb. I wanted to start another company and I was just like, wait, what did I learn in this time? I spent seven years at Airbnb. How do I not have to relearn all that stuff? Like things worked out great. So I decided, let me just jot some notes down of things I learned. So culture is really important and really powerful. Having a really high bar quality is really important. Uh, Setting really ambitious goals, really powerful and important. So I just started writing that down and I started thinking, it's very cliche, writing a Medium post about your learnings at your company. And I was like, God damn it, maybe I should actually do that. And I I came up with this title of what seven years at Airbnb taught me about building a company. And I told it, I like shared it with a friend. He's like, okay, that's going to go viral. You should write that. That's a really good title. Actually, let's talk about it. Seven years gives you credibility. There's a... They've done studies at what does really well in Hacker News. And when somebody says, I spent this many hours, I've spent this much time somewhere, it instantly lends credibility. Or like, I made this much money. I know, but yes, it's really well. of course, of course. At Airbnb, so you have the instant credibility there of the brand name, taught me about building a business. So we know it's going to be a personal testimony of your time there. And then building a business. So now I know I'm going to get something from the article. The structure of that title, if you want to turn into a template, I think is A1. Sweet. Nailed it right from the beginning. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, you. it does seem what I find to be so comical about your process is that you sort of stumbled into all this time and again. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about this. Airbnb setting ambitious goals, but you don't set ambitious goals. What's right. going on there? Yeah, no, I don't. <clears throat> I I set like little goals along the way. So I had this goal of if I can get, once I started the paid newsletter mostly, like if I get to 100,000 a year, holy shit, I could like do this and not have to get a job. I called it my project avoid getting a real job, this whole idea of the newsletter path. So, and then I got there and like, okay, if I get the 300,000, I'm making about what I made at Airbnb with salary and stock and all that stuff. If I can get there, holy shit, that, 
I never have to get a job again. I'll just keep doing this for a while. And then, and it kept growing. Um, and I never, like, I had no vision or goal for this thing. I'm not like, here's the big master plan or here's this empire I want to build. I'm like actively not trying to build an empire. I'm actively trying not to build a media company of any sort. Hmm. I just want to do this. You just want to write. Things are great. Like, why do I, I don't need more stress and work. Like the podcast is a good example where I just have this list of stuff. I'll never do a podcast. I'll never do a course. I'll never do a book. Like, I don't need that. This newsletter is so fun and interesting and I make a living doing it. Like, why do I need more work? I can spend more time with my family and travel and all these things. But eventually the podcast sucked me in. I'm like, I shouldn't do a podcast. Um, I did a course. So the one thing I haven't done yet is a book. Why have you decided to, to do those things? So I did a... Harry Stubbings' podcast, 20VC, and at the end of it, we started, stopped recording, and he's like, Lenny, you should do a podcast, you fool. What are you doing? So I'm like, okay, let me try. So it was, it was that. It was just that conversation. He's like, just enough motivation. I'm like, let me try it out. So I decided, let me give it a shot. And it's actually generates more revenue than the newsletter, grew much faster than the newsletter. Uh, it's really energizing. It's like, it's like a, such a different dynamic from the newsletter. They work together really well. One is just me sitting there writing, the other is like, there's a performance to it a little bit, which I don't naturally do, but kind of pushes me out of my comfort zone, which I think is good. When in your writing are you the happiest? Uh, I always think about, I don't know if Hemingway said, said this thing about how writing is easy. You just sit at the keyboard and bleed. And I definitely feel that in every post. There's this like, oh, this is going to be so fun to figure out what is a good, uh, what is, how do you improve conversion rate for sign up flow? Oh, wow. I'm going to come up with an answer and talk to all these interesting people. Like, oh, it's going to be great. And then it's like, oh, cool, let's do it. And then you go through this like trough of like, oh my God, it's never going to come together. I'm so stuck. Yes, yeah. I'm stuck. I'm, I don't know the framework that I'm going to come up with this thing, or I wish I had all these other people involved. But then I always come out of that. I'm like, oh, we're gonna, it's coming together. There it goes. And then there's this like, okay, cool, let's finish this thing. So I'd say to answer your question, like the beginning is really fun. I'm just like, oh, this is going to be so fun and interesting. And then and then I'd say publishing it is, is great. Like I just put out a post today about how linear builds product and it's doing great. And that feels great. You know, like the, the reaction is always really fulfilling. I'd say the best part is just the messages I get from people that read the stuff I write and they're just like, this changed my career. This helped me get a new job. This really unlocked something for me in the product. Like how much more fulfilling can a job be than getting these messages from people all the time? What kind of difficult emotions do you feel? In theory, I have to write an awesome newsletter for the rest of my life every week. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Just the way that you frame that is like maximizing pressure. That's really funny. Because I have a paid newsletter <laughs> and people are buying it every day and there's annual plans. So they're buying a year. So I have to write a year at least. You can refund them. I could, but then giving up the revenue, like I could shut this whole thing down 100%. But that'd be really tragic, you know, like the revenue and the freedom this newsletter provides is really hard to give up so that would be very hard and very painful and i think people would be really upset too so i think about the indiana jones boulder always coming at me pop culture reference there we go <laughs> didn't, even, ding, ding. didn't even need chat gpt yeah yeah but that's kind of what it feels like like i've gotten really good at not thinking about that too much but i published a post on tuesday that took a long time and then it's like cool gotta start thinking about next week so are you thinking about next week right now? Do you know what you're going to publish? So you just published. Are you already working? There's something that happens on Wednesday. How do you think about that? I, I'm now in a place where I have the next like three or four posts in the works already. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, partly because one of the ways I avoid going insane and burnout is I found ways to have posts that are less work. I have guest posts, which are a growing percentage of my posts because partly I just run out of stuff that I know that I could share. And partly because there's so many smarter people than I on topics. So I just think about what is a topic? Who's the smartest person on that topic? Let me just have them write an awesome thing. And then I spend a lot of time editing it to make it awesome. When you edit, what do people need help with? Introductions are often way too long, as we talked about. The, they kind of lose the, the focus a bit. And so I try to just come back to here's like the most important part. Let's this is what you're trying to say. Yeah, this is what you're trying to say. Let's just say this a little more simply. They get distracted and go in different directions. So it's mostly cutting a lot of stuff, repositioning some stuff. Mostly I just like think about what is interesting to me and where do I get lost? I just pay attention as I'm reading. What's confusing? What's not interesting? Or am I getting to something that will really be like, wow, that's really interesting. What's like an aha for the post. So mostly just pointing out this thing's not interesting. Let's just probably cut this. This gets off track. And then there's also just like grammar stuff and streamlining. And then the introductions are always just like, let's just, let's make this 50% shorter. And that often makes it a lot better. What else makes a good introduction? I struggle with introductions. That's probably the thing I'm least good at. I'm trying to find like an editor to help me. I'm trying to find someone to just like help me make an introduction great. Because I'm always like, this company is unlike any other company that's existed. And here's why. Uh, I don't know what makes a good introduction. I think I'm still learning. I think partly it's what's surprising. Okay, here's something I do. At, uh, in every post, I have this template I start with that has like the framework. And at the top, I have these bullet points that I use to remind myself as I'm writing the introduction. So one is just what's, what's surprising about it? What is, a, what is a good story I can start this thing with? What is something that is, I guess, unexpected, surprising? There's a few more that I forget. And this is why I'm not good at it. I just always forget. What should I, what should I say to get people pulled in? Basically, just want to pull them in. Mostly, I try to keep it really short and just like, let's get right into it. That works. Distribution. When you wrote this post about Airbnb, Medium featured it on your homepage. You've really benefited from the Substack recommendation engine. That is a huge lesson from your writing, how important it is to have the right forms of distribution. And when a platform can go to work for you, up and to the right. Yeah, I think there's a few parts to growth of the new of my newsletter. One is the beginning. How do you just kind of get it started? Like you may have the best content in the world if no one knows it exists. It's not gonna, it's not gonna spread at all. So I think there's a few things you can do early on to get it going. Then there's a few things later on that worked for me, like the recommendation thing we can talk about. But I'd say 99% of my growth has been word of mouth. So I think that's just an important lesson is newsletters mostly grow through word of mouth. They're so affordable. You get an email, you forward it to your friends and colleagues, and then you, there's a link you can share it. So, so that's mostly how things grow. I think a lot of people try paid ads and things like that, but I think that's really hard unless, unless you can monetize it in a really interesting way. But I try to avoid that stuff. So I think to get it started, the thing that worked for me is I wrote a few things on Medium initially. I started on Medium. And having a few people retweet it was really powerful, like Andrew Chen found it really useful and he retweeted it and a few VCs found it useful. I had the advantage that I worked at Airbnb and I had a bit of a brand. So it wasn't, I wasn't just some random that just like, here, pay attention. But I think you can get a lot of that attention, even if you don't have that brand, if your stuff is amazing. You just have to get it in front of people. So, so yeah, Medium featured it, which I did not expect. It 
it got like a bazillion claps on medium if you remember claps yeah. <laughs> uh so that that actually helped me build my twitter following so medium is like not good for growing your audience and and anything because you can't send things you write to them you have to kind of trust medium sends it to them so uh something you should definitely do as soon as you can is move to a place where you collect email addresses so you can get right to people's inboxes that's like incredibly powerful um going back to how it started so medium feature data started growing my twitter following also doing guest posts was really powerful for me writing a post on andrew chen's blog and on the first round review how did you get those to happen I was chatting with First Round about a startup idea I had, and I was in the office, and then I ran into their editor who wrote the First Round review, which I loved. It was like the best source of content on startup stuff. And I was just like, hey, I have this idea for a post that I kind of was toying around with, and she's like, let's chat about it. And so it led to that. So it was kind of, it was kind of a serendipitous thing. And then with Andrew Chen, I met him as I was leaving Airbnb randomly. He was there in the office, and I just like was brave and like, hey, Andrew, uh, I'm leaving Airbnb. I'm thinking about starting a company. We'd love to chat sometime. So we ended up chatting a bit. And then I shared this post with him and he was like, wow, okay, that's great. Let me retweet it. And when you did those guest posts, did you think about linking back to your own owned audience or was that not a focus? No, I think this is another lesson is don't like overthink any of this stuff initially. I just like, let me just write something interesting and see how it goes. I didn't have any plan of any kind. It's just like, here's a thing I want to get out of my head. And that did well, and I continued doing it because it did well. But no, 0% uh, thinking about the future of this thing. Do you think about email conversion percentage now and trying to optimize for that? Or is it just like, no, I just sort of have it and hopefully it goes well, people read it, and it doesn't matter if it's 2.4, 2.7, 3.1, like it'll just sort of work itself out. I don't think about email conversion. I think about just views of a post. So I think about, I do think about, did this post do well? And if they don't do well, which is mostly views that it got, because I can tell roughly how many views on average posts get and which one are doing better and worse, I, I do get sad about it. I'm like, shit, that did not go great. Yeah. <laughs> so do, I do think about how do I do better? How do I avoid this topic? What was it about this post that didn't do great? I was actually looking at a post yesterday around how to, how to hire at your startup, how to win at hiring. And I was reading it. I'm like, this is not that great. Like I could see why it didn't do great. It didn't do great. And it was just like, just a bunch of random stuff and the quotes weren't amazing. So I do think about that. What are the meta lessons from the failure of that post? I don't say fail. I'd yeah, say it's, it's so funny. I said failure. I was like, whoa, yeah. that's it. It's Let's a intense say thing to say. Yeah. Failure. I think a meta lesson there is, I think those, so I had these like four framework, four things to do when you're hiring. Have a compelling vision that you tell your people, like convince them this is amazing. Hire an A++ team because amazing early employees draw other amazing employees. I just felt like it wasn't that unique. It was like, yeah, I know. I know all these things. Surprising. Surprising. It wasn't that surprising. I think that was part of it. So if you were to rewrite that post now, would the answer be, I'm going to go do a bunch of interviews? Would it be, I'm going to really think through this? Or would the answer be, eh, I don't really have much to say on that topic that I think is really good right now. I'm just going to postpone that. I do definitely left my, let myself off the hook with posts sometimes where I'm just like, this is fine, good enough. Like, I don't need my every post to be this, like, home run. I find that if I get mostly, like, two, I don't know, second base, what do you, what's the metaphor? Second base hits, two, two hit, double, 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 double. There you go. double. GPT, what is the metaphor yeah. for two bases? Uh, 
Yeah, if I get mostly doubles and triples with a home run every like month or two, that's that's great. But still, I'd love everything to be awesome. So I think with that post, I'd probably think about a better way to frame each of these things that are more interesting, which I'm bad at. Just like what is a good catchy way to describe these things? And then maybe maybe like more fancy founders. I have, one of the challenges in the work I do is I interview founders. And oftentimes those companies don't do well eventually. And so I look back and like, shit, all these companies are not not doing great anymore. So you lose credibility. But how do I know? How am I supposed to know? Hmm. To your schedule, no meetings till 3 p.m. It used right. to be like 12 or 1. And then you were like, nope, I'm going to push that back to 3, huh? Yeah. Uh, I forget how I introduced this, but I just decided I need time to think and work and research. I'm going to have no meetings until 12 o'clock. And then after 12, I'll do, I do angel investing and some other stuff. So I'll do calls after 12. And then somebody was like, try three o'clock. But I had a similar schedule. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. I only have like two hours to three hours of time for other stuff. But, uh, but I did it and I would never go back. It's incredible. Uh, it also reduces the number of calls and meetings I end up doing because I have less time. Uh, but I find it's such an amazing way to live. There's no meetings until three o'clock. Like this is an example where I made an exception. It's the morning right now. Like, like the rest of the day is not going to be any productivity. No, not productive at all because the morning kind of gets jostled, but it, you know, it's going to be great. Thank you. So no meetings till 3 p.m. And what then do your meetings look like? Uh, so I do some angel investings, talking to founders, a lot of interviews for the post that I do. And then just like, I try to have some fun stuff in the, you know, catch up with friends and stuff like that. But even after three, I try not to have any meetings. Like I try to avoid meetings. I try to avoid, I try to avoid everything. I try to avoid interviews and talks and conferences and events. Because Naval had this awesome quote that I so resonate with that as you become successful, you just have less time to do that thing that made you successful. And there's all these distractions that try to pull you away. Come to this networking event, come to this talk, be on this panel. And I find it so easy just to get drawn into like, oh, this is going to be so fun. I'll meet some fancy people. And then you just lose the thing that you were really good at because you had the time to do that well. And so I try really hard to avoid that because like I said, I have to do this every week for the rest of my life, make an awesome piece of content. And I won't be able to do that if I'm just pulled into all these things. So a big part of what I do now is just saying no to everything. Like I have to, I came up with all these ways to say no. Like when we were trying to schedule this, I'm like, let's try again later, maybe. Like I, I try to like find ways to avoid stuff because I think that's the way to keep at this. What sorts of ways have you come up with to say no? One is I create these policies of just like, I have a policy, no talks, no events, no interviews. It's just like, because I need to protect writing creative time. I help people understand why that's important. I. I just find ways. Yeah, I don't know. I have these little templates that I kind of don't even think about. So one is policies. One is uh, some excuse to like why I can't do it right now. Like I just had a kid. So that's a really good excuse I can use for a while. I just had a kid. I'm really busy right now. Can we just chat in, in, in like six months? The CTO of a public company signed up for Rite of Passage. And I said, hey, congratulations. Can't wait to have you. I would love to do a meeting and just welcome you and make sure that Whatever you need, you'll be happy. And he goes, I don't do meetings. And then this was the big thing. He sent me a post that he had written on why he doesn't do meetings. And I read out the entire thing with the rationale, all of his reasoning. And it was interesting because no's, like I'm a big people pleaser. So no's for me will be like they sort of haunt me. They hurt me because I'm like, uh oh, will this person think 
that I'm a bad person. Will they not like me? But something about having that post and having it feel more like a policy made me be like, you know what? I admire this guy. I admire what this person is doing. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. That's a great idea. Cool. Uh, I also get haunted by, like, I get so many messages and DMs and things of just people asking for things and like inviting me to stuff. And I get, I'm so worried about one time responding to someone in a non-kind way and then them either thinking I'm some asshole or just like, you know, trying to cancel me. Like I, I try to be really, when I do reply, I try really hard to just like, can I make this really nice and help them understand why this is not the case, why I can do something. I also, also find just not replying is often the best route. Just like, cool. I don't know if I saw your message and they never know if they saw my message. And that's a really, that's actually a powerful way to avoid it. It's just, oh, I never got the same op, sorry, but it's hard. What advice do you have for people who write at work? My advice would be if you're at a company and you're trying to write, the thing I would use writing for is to try to remember the things you're learning as you're in them. Because you leave the company, like it's been four years now since I left that work that I write about and it fades and I forget the things I did and you run out of stuff to write about that you've done. So you have a huge advantage being at a company doing the thing where you can actually tap into thing like a challenge you're having that week or a lesson you just learned. So that'd be my tip is Use writing as a way to synthesize and remember the things that you're doing. And it doesn't have to be that long. You could just like tweets or an interesting way of doing it. And then you could flesh it out to something later if that works. So that's one. The other is, I think a lot of people come at writing with, I'm just going to, I'm going to write about what people are excited to hear and what I think will grow my Twitter account or X, my X account or what people will subscribe to. But I find that because this is such a long-term game, you need to it's much more important to focus on what are you excited about and what do you want to spend time on and what are you curious about? Because if you write about something that you think people want to read about and you don't really care about that much, you're just going to get, you're creating this like terrible job for yourself. Square that with the jobs to be done. I'm answering a question yeah. that people have. Yeah. I'm sensing a disconnect there. There is a disconnect. So ideally, like what you want to find is this Venn diagram of the thing you love doing, the thing people value, and then, uh, yeah, I guess those are the two most important parts. How do you deal with criticism? Oh man, it stinks. I hate it. Uh, mostly I think about 99% of people love the thing and one person doesn't like it. Okay, that's okay. They can hate it. Well, you shivered when I asked you that. No, I so hate it. What so was the, what is it that you hate about it? I guess just like to frame this, the scary version of this, like every time I publish something, it goes out to 500 something thousand people. Like it's like a, a massive, many stadiums of people. And so... I try not to think about this too much because if I do something, say something super wrong in the post, I lose credibility. You're like, who is this? You know, and like, I can't trust this guy anymore. He's writing something that is too, super wrong. For example, something that just happened yesterday. It's like not the best example necessarily, but I, uh, I noticed that half, that the second biggest market of my YouTube audience for my podcast is, is in India. So I'm like, how do I make it easier for people in India to listen to the podcast? So I added uh, Hindi subtitles, which feels like, oh, that'd be awesome. More people in India can listen to my podcast. And so I tweeted about it and so proud. Hey, everyone, I got Hindi subtitles. And everyone's like, you fool. Everyone that is in tech in India speaks English. Hindi is like not necessary at all. And it's, it's like harder to read and it completely misinterprets what they're saying. And I'm like, it just makes it feel like I don't know anything about the Indian culture. And I feel like, shit, everyone's going to think I'm an idiot. Uh, so I thought about deleting that, but it's fine. I got good feedback. I learned. Um, 
So, so anyway, I mostly look for, mostly look for what am I doing wrong? What am I not doing great? I don't know. People are like, hey, this guest is, is not great. I don't want any more guests like this. I'm like, it's a good data point. I try to get better. Another example is I had this post about product market fit where I map the timelines of 30-ish companies got, uh, road to product market fit. So I have like all these very specific dates and two different companies kind of ping me and are like, no, this is not right. Uh, we actually had product market fit at this point or here this thing happened. And that, and I tweeted that image and it went like crazy. People loved it and it's everywhere. And correcting it is kind of difficult because now that one out is out. So mostly what I do is I just correct the image, put it in the post, and then just tweet, hey, there's a correction for this post. But again, creates a sense that maybe I'm losing credibility. People are like, oh, he's totally wrong. How do I trust any of this information? So try to avoid that. What writers or people do you really admire and want to emulate in your work? So this comes back to, I don't spend a lot of time on like, I am a writer. I will be a beautiful, amazing writer. I try not to think about that. I try to like signal to noise information and then like later on, I'll try to make this beautiful and interesting as much as I can. But that being said, uh, I'm in like a Rick Rubin hole right now, just reading his book. So just reading how he writes is, is really inspiring. So I'm trying to bring some of that over. I don't know what specifically, but that book is really, like every chapter is just like, wow, okay. Can I try to remember this? Uh, many guests on your podcast. Um, and I think it's partly because they just have high signal to noise. Uh, Tyler Cohen, Noah Smith, that guy is just like a beast. Just like writes every day. It's like incredibly insightful thing. I don't know how he does it. And then um, Kevin Kelly, I don't know. Yeah, just like really succinct. High signal to noise writers is kind of what I what I'm really inspired by. How do you edit your writing? Mostly, I just look at it again and again. I just read so every time I come back to it. I don't. I'm not like a. I write it all at once guy. I know there's like a philosophy of just write the first draft quickly and get it all out. I'm, I don't. I can't do that. I just kind of keep adding to it and have bullet points and keep flushing it out. So I find every time I come back to the post, I just read it from the top and look for things to improve. And every time I do that, I find things to improve and improve. Then as it kind of flushes out again and again, I just keep reading through it, keep reading through it, looking for things that I could cut, things that I could simplify, things that are confusing. My friend describes this as writing friction. So what you want to do is you want to go through and be sensitive to where's their friction? Where do you get caught? Where does something not quite work? Because for the kind of writing that you're going for is you're trying to transmit information. That is the core thing. You're trying to transmit useful information. So what you want is the ultimate efficiency between this is what I learned and it's in my brain to how quickly can I get in it, get it into your brain? It's like a smoothie, right? Sometimes you'll be drinking a smoothie <laughs> and like there's too much, too much fruit in the straw or yeah, something yeah, and like yeah. you're trying to suck it, it's just not going. Whereas other times we'll be drinking a smoothie and it just comes right in and you want the the more liquid smoothie, so to speak. Beautiful metaphor. There we Unless go. Unless that piece of fruit is so good, it's like worth it. I'm going to really think about this part. Uh, I love that metaphor. Yeah, that's exactly how I think about it. And sometimes I have to, there's this phrase, kill your darlings. Like I try to do that all the time. It's just like, I really love this idea, but I just like, it doesn't, it just confuses everything, goes off track. Maybe I'll save it to the end. Maybe I'll save it for a different post. So I'm always just like, shit, I got to cut this thing that I really like. Well, I think one of the things that you're picking up on that hurts Rite of Passage students, and it sounds like you refuse 
yourself to think like this is I need to make my writing beautiful. I need to make it poetic. And in English class, that's how we think about writing. We read these novels and the novels are written with all this purple prose. We're like, in order to be a good writer, I need to write like that. And you're just stripping away all that. You're like, no, there's a question that people need to answer. And it's my job to answer that question and to have a high signal to noise ratio in a way that is super useful to my reader. That's it. And the fact that you don't even identify as a writer, I think is one of your greatest strengths because you don't have ego and pride tied up in needing to write the most beautiful thing. You're just like, I just got to give a good answer over here. Yeah, 100%. I never call myself a writer. Like when I'm trying to describe what I do, I just say, I, I write a so newsletter. So what do you say at Thanksgiving? Hey, Lenny, how you been doing in the last year? How you been doing? What are you working on? What do you say? What do you say? I, it's like very strange. I read a newsletter. I, I, I describe like the verb of what I'm doing. That feels more natural. I read a newsletter. I have this newsletter. And they're like, cares about a newsletter. Like it always sounds very trivial, by the way, when I describe I write a newsletter. But uh, I say I write this newsletter. I have a podcast. I have a job board, a few other things. So it's more like the action that I'm doing, not like me as a person, because I, I don't, definitely don't feel like a writer. It feels very strange. And to your point, every time I think about how do I write beautifully, I just get stuck and it just slows everything down. So I'm just like, let me just share this stuff and then find ways. Mostly it's the introduction that I think about writing, writing, writing as a thing. Just like, how do I introduce this concept and get people pulled in? You ever get writer's block? No. How do I get writer's block? I get like, man, there's so much content here and how do I simplify it in? Overwhelmed. I get overwhelmed with them keeping things, making it make sense and consolidating lots of ideas into something succinct. Yeah. And it gets just like my brain just hurts. It's less like, I don't know what I'm, I'm going to write or how I'm going to. Yeah. Yeah. I don't get writer's block really. I think it's just, you just put in the time. I think you talk about this just like, just like find hours to spend on this thing and then just keep working at it. Like you'll get there. Do work on vacation. I vacation is really hard because I have to put out something awesome every week. Like so, and I have PTO policy, but I can take two weeks in a row. That's like too much because everything, every time I take a vacation, my growth slows, it plateaus. It's like very linear. You can like watch the growth. And every time I was on paternity leave, for three months or, or so and like complete flat growth during that period even though i did post something every week because i worked on it behind beforehand and created a backlog of posts that came out during my pat leave so i worked extra hard before i went on pat leave but i didn't have the chance to promote it really and tweet about it and linkedin and all that stuff um so i do check twitter and linkedin and stuff on vacation i do feel like i always have to think about work because there's always something more I have to work on. There's like a post I'm working on in the future. So what are your promotion vehicles? You have the email list, you have Twitter, LinkedIn, what else? That's basically it. X. Selfies on Instagram. No. 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 Uh, yeah, basically uh, Twitter slash X and LinkedIn and then the newsletter. And how do you think about Twitter versus LinkedIn differently? So I find LinkedIn is much more effective, actually. It's like shockingly powerful for getting attention. Much, like more than X slash Twitter. Uh, more traffic comes from LinkedIn. I think for my stuff, it makes sense because it's business oriented. But X slash Twitter is just so much more fun. Like that's where I enjoy posting more. It just feels like more live. There's like tweets and retweets and posts and likes and all these things. LinkedIn is just like, what? Just sits there and like get some reactions and stuff. What works on LinkedIn? The benefit of LinkedIn is you can have like more content in the post. So I usually start with Twitter, keeping it really short. And then I'm like, okay, 
if I could add a few more things, I'd do that on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn gives me a little more, a little more breathing room. Tell me about your research process. Define a topic to write on, list of target companies you want to talk to, find warm intros or cold DM an email, throw collected info into a Google Doc, stare at it for a while, I want to hear about that, and then finally turn it into a story or framework. So those are your six steps, but I want to hear about staring and finding the story or framework. How does that happen for you? So let's let's look at an example. Uh, so a recent series I did is on starting a B2B business. And so I started with, basically the series was, how do you kickstart and scale a B2B startup? Like, I just want to give you a manual, basically. How do you do that? You're starting a company. What are the steps? How do I be successful? So I start with, make a list of all the companies I want to talk to. Talk to Amplitude and uh, GitHub and uh, Slack and all these companies. I interview them all. Takes a lot of time. Uh, so I interview them for about an hour and I collect all these transcripts. And as I'm doing that, I start to just jot down patterns I hear again and again. And I start to jot down like a sequence, essentially, of things that they did, just like roughly. And then I also think about just like, what are the questions people are going to have about building a B2B company? Like, how do I come up with an idea? How do I get my first customers? How do I know if I have product market fit? How do I hire my first people? So it's kind of this combination of just like, what are people going to wonder? What comes up again and again? So I start with just all the content and interviews and then look for, I kind of just read through them and just look for stuff that comes up again and again. So an example, how do you find product market fit? Something that came up again and again is start with just one company that loves you. Like if you're building, say you're building uh, Slack, just like find one company that loves Slack. Figma is actually a better example. They, uh, Coda was their first customer, their first user, and they just obsessed with, let's make Coda so happy with Figma. And there's a story they tell where they set them up, they went to their office, they set them up on Figma. Then they left and the engineers started using it or the, the team started using it and they, they call it like, hey, it's not working. It's broken. We're not gonna we're not gonna use it. And they were they just got back to the office and they're like, let's go. So they drove all the way back to their office, another hour drive, and they showed up and it turned out the Wi-Fi had a problem. So their engineer is just sitting there fixing their Wi-Fi and just like, guys, it's gonna be okay. We're gonna fix it for you. And I got them on track and I became their first customer and they loved it. So so the, so it's actually like those stories that stick with me too. Like one example, we're like, oh wow, maybe this is a pattern I can pull out of this hole process. So in that post, I'm just like, okay, the pattern is get one company to love you, get a few companies to love you, get them to pay for your product, continue growing, essentially. And you write in Coda. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So I start with Coda for tracking all of my ideas, tracking the content calendar, starting the initial drafts. Yeah. I actually don't use Google Docs. I use Google Docs for um, guest posts. Wait, so walk me through what yeah. you do in Coda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then walk me through the Google Docs with the guest posts. So Coda, it says the, the home base for the newsletter. I have all of my future posts as pages. So there's like a left nav bar of all the posts I'm thinking about and the schedule that I think they're going to come out in. And how many are in there? I have probably 50 just ideas of posts that are for the future that have no content yet. I have five that are like in the works. And then I put dates on the ones that I'm thinking about in the near future, just to make sure I'm, I have a sense of when they're all going to come out. So then I start just writing bullet points for an idea. So 
So I don't know, a bad example maybe is I'm thinking about a post on what is the essential uh, library for product management. Like what are the books you should read? What's like the essential reads if you want to get into product management? Like it's kind of an easier post, which I always like to have in the back pocket if I'm just really stressed out. So I start, so I'm basically collecting things my guests on my podcast have said, things people have tweeted of here's my favorite books on product management. I'm just kind of like starting to put in raw data. And then as that approaches, I start to flush it out. But I'm going off track from your question. Uh, so Coda is kind of where I start everything. Eventually, once it gets flushed out enough, I move it all to Substack and just use their editor. Because often there's formatting ch changes and things like that. Also, Substack is like really beautiful the way the editor works. And I try to like look at it and see, is this making sense? How are the headings going to look? That kind of thing. So in Coda, are you coming back to things that you thought that you were going to write about in previous posts and bring them into new ones? How is the search functionality? Do you have folders? How does that work? It's pretty simple. I have folders for like upcoming posts that I'm working on, ideas. I have like coded docs of like writing advice to myself. Hmm. Just like what's in that? It's kind of stuff we've talked about, like what's something surprising about the thing you're doing? How do you cut? What can, what can you cut? And what's a story you can tell? What's a metaphor? Those sort of things. But yeah. pop culture, pop GPT. culture, G, that's going to be a new thing. <laughs> just ask ChatGPT. Can you write this for me? It's a beautiful metaphor. Uh, so I have that, and so it's basically just a way to organize, like a content calendar meets initial draft of a post, and then and then I move it to Substack. It's like it's pretty easy. And tell me about Google Docs for guest posts. Yeah, I find there's no better platform for collaborating on a post. So good. It's so simple and so good. Like, why is it so hard? But can anyone do something better? Great. Uh, so I ask all my guests, authors, to just start in, in Google Docs. And then I just go through there and leave comments, suggest edits, things like that. And eventually, once it gets to a good done state. So I have a copy editor. I don't know. We haven't talked about that. But I have a copy editor who's uh, incredible. And that's like a game-changing thing. Like she, It's like 100 bucks a post or something like that. It's like not that much. And she catches like 100 things every time. Like, no matter how much I think it's done, there's like a hundred things that... What sorts of things? Like commas and, you know, grammar typo things and capitalizing letters and pronouns, things like that. Like stuff I have no... And then like, you'd think I'd learn, like, oh, okay, here's all the things I keep doing wrong, but it's still a hundred things every time. Oh, I'm blind in my own writing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just amazed. I do, I do a little journal thing every day and I then send it to a friend. And what I do is I'll run it through GPT and I'll say, hey, are there any typos? And I swear at this point, there's no typos. Like, there's no way that there's typos. Here's eight things that you totally missed. It's like, I wrote 200 words and I don't know what it is, but as a writer, I'm just blind to what I've written, especially right after I've written it. There's, I can't see the mistakes I've made. Like, the worst thing I do is I, I tweak it a little bit right before it goes out after the copy editor has done it. I'm like, I don't need to run this by her. It's fine. It's great. I just changed a few things. There's always something wrong. Well, the problem is fresh in your mind. You have the intent of what you're trying to say. You have the context. So when you're reading something, you're reading with that intent, with that context. A copy editor has none of that information. So they see it in a much more objective way. Yeah, I think that's right. Also, just her brain works in this really crazy way where she just like can't stand it being wrong. She just sees the problem. It's like, oh. Uh, and every time I email out something that has a problem, she like immediately emails me, Lenny, you got this, this needs to be fixed. 
is just like personally motivated to make you it awesome. You need to know. You need to know. She's just like, you know, she takes pride in, in the newsletter at this point and she just is really unhappy, like in a ha- in a friendly, supportive way of just like, oh, you scoot this up. Fix, fix. Tell me about these writing prompts. What do I want to learn about? What do I want to remember? What is interesting to me right now? What has someone asked me that I didn't have a great answer to? What have I said on Twitter that has resonated? Yeah. So those are people ask me, what should I write about? I want to start writing. What do I write about? And I forget where I shared that, but that's the, the answer I had for people. I think that fourth one is, is interesting, which is what do people ask me about that I don't have a great answer to? That's essentially what led to my newsletter is just people were asking me about these marketplace questions. I'm like, let me go find out. I don't, I don't know the answer. And I think, I think anyone can do that really. It's just like, I don't know. What are, what are questions you wish you had an answer to? Go find out. If, especially if you have some background in it, especially if you can get to people that might have a good answer. But roughly, yeah, those are ways to prompt what to write about. And it's essentially what I do. Tell me about your writing environment. What is your office like? What kind of chair do you sit in? How have you thought about that? Wow, I feel so, uh, so fancy asking about my office environment. I, work in, I try to work in different parts of the house. I find that that's really helpful. So I don't get like my office, it becomes, it's the podcast studio now. And I just, sometimes I get this, like, it's like a little bit stressful to go in there. Cause like not my natural state to be a podcast person. So it's like nerve wracking. So I sometimes feel that when I get in there, it's like, no, I'm not going to go in there right now. Uh, so I sometimes work on the couch, sometimes go to cafes. I think you were telling me you have these four things that matter to you and things are great. And basically that's like, all I need is just like a laptop and head. My, my list is different. Laptop, headphones. Good mute, like I use Brain FM to create this, uh, this zone feeling where I can focus. I don't know how much you know about Brain FM. Creates this binaural beats thing, just endless binaural beats that, in theory, help your brain focus, and that works really well for me. And then Wi-Fi is is all I need. So so when I when I'm out and about, that's all I need. Uh, and then when I'm in the office, I don't know. I got this Herman home Miller. office. Home office, yeah. I work from home. It's amazing. Highly recommend, especially with a new kid. Nice to be around. Do you put on clothes or do you write in pajamas and slippers? I put on Vioris often. Oh, that's what I wear. Nice. High five. Yeah, I do that. I, the Vioris sweatpants are phenomenal. Yeah, I just bought some yesterday, some new ones. They're so good. Sunday joggers. That's a post you got to write. Why is Vioris so much more comfortable than all the other workout casual gear? Yeah, there's like so many soft brands, but something they did right. I think it's like tight enough and soft enough. It's like a nice combo. And their brand, you know, they did a good job. So what I need anywhere in the world, but I need these four things so much is comfy chair, sparkling water, coffee, comfortable chair, fast Wi-Fi. But if I have those four things, I can write from anywhere. Yeah. I think I can do without a comfy chair. I think that's, I think I'd live with this for a while. You have a write from coffee shops. Yeah. It's awesome. I love it. Especially just getting out of the house is really nice. I will say I spent a lot of time very distracted. A lot of my days just checking Twitter and LinkedIn. I didn't expect you to say that. Absolutely. I'm very, very distractible. Uh, and I somehow works. So I have like a post I'm trying to work on. I, I checked Twitter probably 30 times. Just like, man, what's going on? Especially if I just tweeted something. But something about that like gives my brain a little break. Where I'm just like, oh, how do I got to write something here? I just like check Twitter, get into a little pull, get pulled into something and then come back to it. Somehow it works. So you're not bothered by the distraction? I'd rather not be distracted. Like if I could not check Twitter and LinkedIn and whatever, I would, I would not. But it, uh, it's hard to avoid. As much, like I deleted the Twitter app on my phone and just used the mobile web site. 
Uh, but it doesn't, it seems to work is kind of what I've concluded. Like, I don't need to block it. I feel like I get enough done, even though I check Twitter slash X uh, often. What's the coolest thing that's coming from your writing? Whoa, this podcast. That's the right answer. <laughs> that answer was not paid for. We need like that fast guy in an advertisement, you know, like at the end, you know, da -da 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 -da. not sponsored. Yeah, exactly. reaction. What is the coolest thing that has come from this? Wow. I guess the coolest thing is just that I can do this full time and I don't need to get a regular job. I don't know if that's a good answer to that question, but it's insane that I could just do this full time and just sit around and think about stuff and write about it. And I make a very meaningful income from it. And it's also very fulfilling. What is it that you love about this topic of product management and everything that orbits it? So on that topic, you talk about this, actually. I'd love to get your take. Yeah. I think you're big on create a personal monopoly around like a very niche topic. Mm -hmm. So I find if I were to follow that advice fully, and I don't know if I, I fully understand the advice, so maybe I wasn't fully uh, aware of how you describe it. But if, if I were to do that, I would be like, I am Mr. Product Management guy. I'm just going to write about product management. That's going to be my thing. But I would just like be so bored if that was all I wrote about. There's only so many things you can write about product management. Like I don't care about product management that much. I'm not going to spend my life thinking about product management. So what I decided to do, let me just think about a few topics in the area, like growth for product and career stuff and starting a company and product management all combined. So I decided, let me just give myself permission to go in any of those directions because they're all interesting to me. And... It's hard to describe what I do initially, and it's like have this whole sentence describing what it is I do. But one, it gave me enough motivation and excitement to keep going. I was like, oh yeah, there's a new thing I want to write about. Oh, there's a thing, there's a thing. Uh, so that helped me stay motivated. And I feel like that's such a key part of this life is having, like being excited about the thing you're writing about. Because you can so easily create a job for yourself you hate because you pick the topic and then you're stuck writing about that for years. And why would you do that? Yeah, prison of your own creation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to the personal monopoly point, rule number one is do whatever it is going to take for you to be able to write. Any advice that would take you away from writing, any strategy that means I'm going to write 80, 90% less is going to be bad advice. So I would start with rule number one is you have to write, you have to write consistently. And if you don't actually enjoy it, then you have no chance of being successful. You have no shot because you're going to burn out and all that. But to the point about personal monopoly, yes, you have expanded, but you're not writing about the philosophy of sea lions in the San Francisco Bay. Like I'd be pretty surprised if I saw that on your Substack. So there is a limiting factor. And I think that the key thing is you have your own intuitive sense of what is part of your personal monopoly, what's not part of it. And it doesn't need to be perfectly mapped out. But the fact that I have a good sense for what a Lenison post is, I think is really all that you need. And I also think about the word of mouth. So I don't know if this would be a characterization you're happy with, but I'm just imagining myself at a bar hanging out with some friends. Hey, yeah, you know, there's this, there's this guy named Lenny, you're a product manager, and he writes really well about startups and growth and product management. That's sort of his thing. And I don't know exactly what he's written about recently, but if that's what you're interested in, you can go on his blog and basically everything you read is going to be pretty good. I always think about that recommendation of how do you have something that's specific enough that somebody else can recommend you, whereas there's other people 
who you don't have that for. And then it actually gets a lot harder to recommend their stuff because I guess you can recommend a specific post here, a specific post there. But as a reader, it is hard to situate yourself in their work and figure out exactly what they're focused on. Yeah, it's exactly the same problem you have to solve with a startup is like when someone has a problem, you want them to think of your thing. Like if you're trying to do an analytics, you need analytics help. Like you want to think Amplitude or Mixpanel. So I think it's exactly the same thing. Like I'm building a product. Who's the newsletter? It's connected to the jobs to be done thing. Like what is the job I need done? I need to figure out how to become a better product manager. You want to be in people's heads when they're thinking about that. Um, yo, going back to your question of what is the coolest thing that's come out of this, another thought that came to mind as you're chatting is every time I come to San Francisco now, I live in, in Marin, uh, somebody recognizes me and they often ask for a selfie, which is crazy that that would happen with a, a newsletter. Uh, I'm just like, every time I come, there's going to be one person that's like, are you Lenny? Which is surreal. What's the right kind of fame to, to have? I think this is a pretty good level where it's like very niche. Like it's all product managers and like founders. It's not like uh, uh, rando people trying to stalk me. My wife's like very worried about getting too popular. And she's like worried about what we do in public a little bit. Because like people might be like, oh my God, a second. Uh, so it adds a little bit of like things we have to think about. But, it's, but it, I think it's the right level where it's a niche community of people like really like the stuff I do and they're like, oh, look at you. Here you are. But it's not, you know, paparazzi level. Taylor Swift had to leave the Chiefs game in a popcorn stand. Oh man, she like really travels in those boxes and stuff, right? And like yeah. crates. It's like a it's a clever way. What a life. <laughs> <laughs> what a life. Yeah, I call this niche fame. You I know it's a good name because you called it niche fame yeah, exactly. without realizing that's what I call it. Oh, wow. So that is one way to think of a good name. And I think of it like the fame of an academic professor. You can meet whoever you want to meet. People respect you, but you're not going to be recognized on the street. And it's not like you're having, at least right now, a massive quality of life decrease, but you can still meet the people you want to interview. I'm sure you have access to really interesting conversations if you want to have them. And also, it is proof that you're doing good and important work, and that's something to celebrate. Yeah, I love it. Niche fame. That's what I got over here. Tell me about the jobs we've done framework and how should, if I'm a new writer, how should I be thinking about this? So there's like a whole world of jobs to be done. That Clayton Christensen? Yeah, Clayton Christensen came up with this initially. And there's this like famous, I guess like the best example I think of is Milky Way versus Snickers. I had, I had one of the co-creators. Yeah, I know. I not expecting you to go there. <laughs> I had one of the co-creators on the podcast and I just learned this metaphor. Uh, so... Milky Way and Snickers, you would think, compete with each other. But it turns out, Snickers is what people go to when they're like, they want to feel full. They, they just need a quick snack. And they don't have time to eat something. And a Snickers is like very filling. Versus Milky Way, which people buy for like comfort. They just want to feel better. They're like sad. They're on the couch. They're watching a sad movie. People buy Milky Ways. Turns out. And so it turns out they're solving very different problems. People buy them to do a different job for themselves. So the whole idea of this jobs to be done framework is people buy your product, people listen to your podcast, people read your newsletter because they have a job they want you to do for them. So it could be, I want to get better in my career. What am I going to hire to do? Help me with that. I want to learn to write. I want to learn. I want to make money. I want to, I want to be entertained. That's a job. Like I just want to be, have a good time. So what I find is the best newsletters, and I think it applies to most things 
are ones that solve that specific job really well. So your course is like the best solver of, I want to learn to write online. And so obviously that's why it does great because a lot of people want to do that. So that's what I find is really important is just think about, just like be really real. What job are you doing for people? And then just do that as well as you can for them. And the newsletters and courses that don't do well are ones that are just like this. They just want to pontificate on ideas. Like, here's what I think about technology. Here's what I think on trends. And there's a job there of like, I just want to be smarter. Help me be smarter about the world. I think The Economist had this tagline at one point of like, be smarter at dinner parties. That was their pitch. And so I think there's a job there, but I think there the bar is so high. You have to be like so smart. You know, you're competing with Tyler Cohen and Noah Smith and Ben Thompson. Ben Thompson. Yeah. So I always think of morning newsletters like The Morning Brew as the job to be done there is when people are talking about the news at the water cooler, you have enough to say that you can contribute to the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. It's like, help me stay aware of what's happening in the world. I think that's a really good job. The and it's important that people have that job. There's a lot of newsletters out there that are writing about stuff people don't really care about. So that's an important thing you got to get right. Like, are there enough people that have this job that they need done? Do you think that exists? What? Enough people? For? What I mean is you have product managers. I mean, intuitively, I would actually guess that that's not a huge market, but you've rushed it. If you had told me a few years ago, I'm going to have 500,000 or more subscribers based on writing about product management, I would have punted you like a football and called you crazy. I would have, I would have felt the same. Yeah. Turns out I did a search on uh, LinkedIn. There's 800,000 product managers in the US and 2 million in the world in some form. So like, I didn't even know that. So that's, that's maybe part of it. But I think it's partly because I focus on broader things like stuff founders care about, just general people like designers, enjoy the newsletter engineers. But you're, I think you're right. Like, Oftentimes, a very small niche is, is totally fine. Like when I had a thousand paid subscribers, I was making a hundred thousand bucks a year. And that's like a very reasonable salary to live on. So it's exactly Kevin Kelly's idea of a thousand true fans. It's exactly what happened to me. I'm like, at a thousand, hey, okay, this is working. So uh, you don't need it to be massive. I don't know. At some point, this thing, like I, I look for the S curve in my growth, you know, like, Growth starts accelerating and then it slows down. That's usually how everything grows. So I'm, I'm waiting for that day when it starts to like, eh, okay, you've reached capacity. I haven't gotten there yet. Well, you really reached an inflection point, just the opposite with the recommendation engine on Substack. Why do you think yours was so popular? Yeah. So I don't know if people know about this feature, but on Substack, you can, as a writer, you can recommend other writers. So I recommend a few other newsletters. So when they sign up for my newsletter, they're like, hey, here's Lenny's recommendations. Do you want to subscribe to these other newsletters? Uh, at this point, 9,000 other newsletters recommend my newsletter. And if you look at the growth of my newsletter, there's a huge inflection the day they launched that feature. So just on the one hand, there's never been a better time to build and grow a newsletter because that one feature exists. And all the other newsletter platforms copied it. They all, everyone's got that now. The reason I think it worked well for me, like, I don't think it's going to work as well for everyone, is I had like a known quantity at the point they launched that feature. So a lot of people could be like, oh, what am I going to recommend? Oh, yeah, I know about Lenny's newsletter. So I think that was really important. I don't know if there's anything else. I think, I think it was just like a successful newsletter with that feature. But if you have a successful newsletter today, 
and people are thinking about who to recommend, they'll, they'll think of you. So who do you read? So many newsletters. I subscribe to like 80 newsletters, I think. Uh, so there's a lot. Um, Noah Smith is one I really love. I don't know if you know about all his stuff, but I just feel like every time I read his stuff, I'm just smarter. Okay, that's great. I've been listening to Ben Thompson on podcast. I find that that's actually more interesting. He's got Smart Tech, I think it's called, where they talk about... So I, I, I've shifted to podcasts for Ben Thompson. I don't read as much as I used to because I have a kid now and I just don't have any time. So my reading has been depleted. Uh, so mostly Twitter and <laughs> LinkedIn. Those are fairly standard answers. So how do, would you go from standard consumption to differentiated production? You're clearly doing it. So I'm trying to figure out how that's happening. I don't know how much the consumption informs my production, even though Rick Rubin talks about his whole thing is like his skill is creating taste by consuming really high quality stuff. Like, I love that. He's just like a high taste person that doesn't have any skills in music. He's just like, I know it's good because I listen to good stuff all the time. Uh, that's not me. I don't, I don't know how that's much. That's so cool, isn't it? Isn't it? That's so cool. That's like the best job ever. Yeah, just, I got great taste. Yeah. I have great taste. I just consume great things and I trust my intuition for what's great. And then I produce great music. I know nothing about music. I just trust my taste. I think that's awesome. There's a meme that came around on, in like product management with that, where there's a clip of him being like, I don't have any skills of any specific kind. I just share my opinions and <laughs> tell people what I think. <laughs> like, that's product management. <laughs> Um, so to answer your question, I don't know how much consumption actually informs what I, it's mostly just like people writing. So I think what this makes me think about is to build a successful newsletter, you need to contribute something new to the conversation. There's a lot of just like rehashing of stuff. There's a lot of superficial analysis and thinking and pontificating on things. And I find that what people really want is tell me something new that I haven't heard. Like, how do I find product market fit? Like, what can I do? That's a new insight into how to do that might be just like stories people have never heard about it might be a new system so it's more just like okay i've seen people do this and this and that what can i do that's different in that direction and i think that's probably the the best way that does it i, I like i have a whole folder now of newsletters i kind of like find i don't have as much time to even read other newsletters right now how does your experience as a web developer and an engineer shape your writing process i think the main way is I know what I'm talking about when I write about the stuff I write about. I think there's a lot of people, we talked about like thirsty online Twitter people are just like, I'm going to build a following. And then they just write about stuff they have no background in. And just like, it's very superficial, not that useful. So I think the fact that I was an engineer and then a project manager for a long time, just like gives me background on stuff I'm writing about. And I can, it helps me understand like what is super obvious and boring and also just what is probably not right. And I need to dig in further. Like sometimes people give me these bullshit answers and in interviews. I'm like, are you sure that's how it went? Maybe. Was there mm. anything that was challenging around that? Say more about that. Like when people talk about finding, I don't, we keep going back to the product market fit example. People tell me how quickly they got to product market fit. And I'm, I'm just like, that's not like any other story I've heard. Is there like a period before that, that maybe you spent thinking about this idea? Maybe it took you a little, like how long did it really take you to build this thing? Kind of helps me understand to push on people. So that's maybe one answer to your question. The other is as an engineer, you learn to focus, you create flow states and things like that. So I think just tapping into like, how was I able to get into the flow state when I was an engineer? So 
binaural beats was really helpful. Avoiding distractions, headphones. What's that called? Magic Mind? Magic Mind. What's that? Uh, yeah, so I have this, there's this product that a friend of mine made, actually, James Bashara, that is this like concoction of uh, herbs and supplements that help you focus. He calls it the first focus energy drink. Focus drink. Focused, focus at a drink. And uh, I drink it when I really, really need focus, when I need to like really buckle down and get into the zone. I took some before this interview, actually, just like just a bit because I don't Did want to work. Or, it's working great. Look at us go. We're killing it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's called Magic Mind. There's there's other things like this, but I, but I like it. And it's like a little green bottle. You just like shoot it. And it's got like all the things that you need to focus. How about product management? I think one of the things that is revealing is you've become more systematic in terms of planning out posts over time. And there is a discipline that you definitely have. Like when you said earlier, sometimes I'm done by Saturday or Sunday, I'm ready to go. I heard that I was flabbergasted. And I was like, I, I, that would never happen to me. And I know other writers who they would say, what do you mean that I would get something done on time? The deadline is the thing that gets me going. And I would totally pull an all nighter. And you're like, no, you know, I just wouldn't really pull an all-nighter. I would probably just go on PTO for the week. That calmness, that order, that systematization, that seems to be downstream of product management. It might be. It might be the opposite. Like I became, oh, really? I got into product management because that's the way I like to be. I think I just try to avoid stress and I don't want to get stressed by having a post not ready by the end of Tuesday. Um, honestly, people ask me a lot, like how did product management influence the way you write and like, I honestly don't do most of the things you would think I would do. Like, think about the strategy for this thing. Think about the roadmap. Think about the vision. Like, I don't do any of that. I just focus on what you said. It's just right, awesome stuff. Everything else is a distractions. Touches on something else I tell people a lot. There's all this, people spend so much time trying to think about, where do I host my newsletter? What do I call it? Where do I, let me design it beautifully. Let me think about the big idea and the strategy and my positioning of how it's going to fit everywhere. And I just... Like especially moving to other platforms, like people keep moving to other platforms off Substack, and I just notice that when they do that, it just growth slows, and because they're just distracted, they're trying to like optimize their homepage and build this thing and tweak it. When all really you need to do is write awesome stuff, and it'll spread. And any time you spend on that is just wasted time. You could be spending on writing awesome stuff. So, so maybe that's part of the answer to your question of product management. Because as a PM, you have to prioritize really well. There's so much stuff. There's everything's on fire all the time. So I think just coming back to how do I prioritize really intelligently, maybe. But otherwise, I don't think about it. I don't think about what I do from the perspective of product management. Well, Lenny, if Rite of Passage existed to create an archetype of person, I think it's just like you. Someone with domain expertise who just loves the craft, doesn't get distracted. And I admired your work a lot before we did this, but now I admired you and the work even more and it's just makes you really happy that people like you succeed on substack and on the internet thanks man imagine how much better this would be if i took the course if i actually knew what i was doing that'll take it to the next level well we're gonna take things from this we'll put inside a rite of passage oh, there you go. and uh thanks for your time man thank you